Welcome to Module 13 of Administrative Law. I'm Craig Forces. In the last module, we began discussing the content of procedural entitlements and specifically focusing on audi ultram partum, the right to be heard. We look first at the idea that the content of procedural fairness varies according to the circumstances, that it's very fact dependent. And so while one has a right to be heard, the specific content of the right to be heard varies depending on the circumstances. And we looked first at a test of sorts provided by the Supreme Court in Baker as to the variables one looks at and deciding how much audio partum one gets. Does one get a substantial amount of procedural fairness? Does one get little procedural fairness? Or does one get something in between? And we looked at the five variables of that test. But as I said in that module, do not stop at the Baker test, because the Baker test at best provides an intensity test. It tells you how much, how little. It doesn't provide you with much precise guidance on whether in a given circumstance one is owed a specific procedural right or not. And so we drilled down and we focused on some specific procedural rights. We focused in that module 12 on knowing and conveying the case, under which heading we talked about notice, disclosure, representation, and hearings. In this module, we're going to talk about a different class of audiultram partum rights, that is, rights associated with deciding the case. And so here we will talk about evidence, they who hears decides, undue delay, and reasons. These are all procedural entitlements that should be followed in making the decision. And so let's talk first about this question of evidence. Clearly, most decision-making by delegates involves the assessment of facts considered in order to arrive at an outcome. A decision cannot be made unless there are facts to support that decision. And so the delegate must find the facts, and the facts have to be assessed as evidence. That begs the question, what if any rules of evidence apply to delegates? Well, unless expressly required to do so, by a statute or regulations, delegates need not apply those rules of evidence associated with court proceedings that are the fodder for your courses on evidence, both civil and criminal. In part because delegates are often lay persons unfamiliar with the rules of evidence. So strict rules of evidence do not apply to administrative decision makers as a matter of procedural fairness. On the other hand, there are certain principles that procedural fairness will defend. So the first and most obvious, there must be evidence. There may not be strict rules of evidence, but the delegate can only act on evidence that supports the facts that they find. And so there has to be evidence supporting the delegate's decision. As we'll see, this overlaps with concerns in substantive review about delegates who arrive at conclusions that are unsupported by the facts. That's known as an error of fact. And so what sort of evidence can be ingested by an administrative decision maker. Well, as a general rule in administrative proceedings, the basic criterion for admissibility of evidence is relevance. Relevant evidence is admissible while irrelevant evidence is not. And to determine relevance, one looks to the notice of the decision and other documents that describe the purpose and subject matter of the proceedings. That sets the scope for what one considers relevant. The second evidentiary consideration is weight. Not all relevant evidence is of equal probative value, that is, tending to prove the fact for which it is asserted. 
In assessing weight, delegates typically consider the extent to which the evidence is reliable and persuasive. Now, in common law, for rules of evidence in civil proceedings and in criminal proceedings, delegates are generally not permitted to rely on hearsay, although there are so many exceptions now to that rule that the exception may have swallowed the actual rule. In administrative law, there is no hearsay prohibition. Now, recall what hearsay is, evidence based on what has been reported to the witness rather than the, what the witness themselves observed or experienced. There is no bar on admissibility of hearsay evidence in administrative law. That said, where the delegate's decision has serious consequences for the party and the decision is based entirely on hearsay, there are court decisions that conclude that that is a violation of procedural fairness. The last evidentiary consideration, the burden of proof, the burden of proof before an administrative tribunal is generally that of balance of probabilities. Now, of course, statutes can change that, but absent some statutory dictate, generally speaking, the burden of proof is going to be the civil standard of balance of probabilities. Turning to the next consideration in terms of our march through procedural entitlements, there is the concept of they who hears decides. Now, remember, early in this class, we talked about the principle of delegatus non potest delegate. That is the idea that one delegate cannot subdelegate to another delegate. Now, I said that that rule was subject to many exceptions. Again, so many exceptions that the exceptions may have swallowed the rule. But I also said you had to be attentive to procedural standards that exist at common law, Section 7, Canadian Bill of Rights, because those procedural standards may indicate who it is that can actually render a decision. And the specific rule, they who hears decides, is this. A person who does the listening clearly must be the person who makes the decision. If one has the right to make submissions and to be heard, then one also has a right to be listened to. And if the person who's listening to you turns out not to be the decision maker and the decision maker is someone else who never heard your submissions, how is it that you've had a right to be heard. And so this concept of they who hears decides says that if you have a right to present your case to a decision maker, the corollary is that you have a right to have the decision made by the person who hears you. And of course, where this rule is most relevant is with oral hearings, because with written hearings, presumably any person is equally able to pick up your written submissions and read them without violating your right to be heard. On the other hand, if oral hearings exist, for example, as a means of assessing credibility of witnesses, the fact that someone who was never there to perform that assessment is making the decision absolutely negates the whole purpose of holding the oral hearing in the first place. Now, this can get complicated with institutional decision making, and there's a trilogy of Supreme Court cases that work through the details of institutional decision making, Consolidated Bathurst, Ellis Dawn, and Tremblay. And basically, all these cases dealt with boards that sat as panels. They were big boards. They had 40 or more members, and they had panels of three who would hear individual cases. And of course, the concern of the board was to ensure that there was consistency across panels. And so the boards would hold periodic meetings for the purpose of working out common approaches to common themes. And these full board meetings were a practical means of calling upon the accumulated experience and expertise of board members who were encountering similar phenomena. But of course, while that's a good reason embedded in efficiency and consistency to justify these sorts of meetings, one must avoid violating the doctrine of they who hears must decide. And so in the Consolidated Bathurst, 
Alice Dawn, and Tremblay trilogy, the Supreme Court tried to square that circle. When can you have these communal plenary board meetings without violating the doctrine of they who hears decides? The Supreme Court recognized that they who hears must decide, and the person making that decision must be the person who heard alone. They can't be supplemented by other people who never heard the arguments. And again, we're talking here about oral hearings. It can't be a decision of a bunch of people who weren't otherwise implicated in hearing the submissions. But that said, the court also concluded that this rule does not prevent members of a panel who conducted the hearing from informally discussing policy and legal issues that arise from that case with other members who did not hear that case. The important bright line here is that the members who did not participate in hearing the case should not participate in finding facts related to that case or in making the decision. That finding of facts and making of decisions is a task to be performed solely by the panel members who heard the case. And so, yes, you can talk about policy and legal issues at a generic level, but no, you cannot discuss the facts that are specific to a particular case or participate in the making of the decision. The Tremblay case was even more egregious. In the Tremblay case, there were obligatory pre-decision meetings that had to be held in this plenary setting with other members of the board. And the president of the tribunal was essentially in a position to lean on the panel and get them to change a draft decision. The court concluded that in these sorts of circumstances where this sort of influence could be exercised, you were violating that they who hears decides doctrine, but also there was the prospect of something uh, coming close to bias in the decision-making process. And so this was kind of a halfway house between audi ultram partum and the prohibition against biased decision-making. There's one other aspect of they who hears must decide that I'll mention at this point, and that is the use of tribunal counsel. It is not uncommon for tribunals, the more formal quasi-judicial bodies, to have their own staff counsel. A board can retain legal counsel to provide advice and assistance, but they should not play an adversarial role in the hearing process or unduly influence the outcome made by the decision makers. And so where a lawyer does act in a sort of prosecutorial capacity, that staff counsel may not participate in making the final decision. The bottom line is this, the obligations to conduct a fair hearing and to make that final determination and decision cannot be delegated by the tribunal to its counsel. That would violate not just the prohibition on subdelegation, but also would constitute a violation of procedural fairness. Next, delay, or more specifically, undue delay. Administrative decision-making can take a long time, much like court adjudication can. At what point does delay become undue and constitute a violation of procedural fairness? Well, the notion of delay constituting what's known as an abusive process was canvassed by the Supreme Court in the Blanco decision. And there the Supreme Court concluded that unacceptable delays may at some point amount to an abusive process, even when there's not a violation of some other procedural expectation. And so, for instance, there could be examples of where the delay imposed such stigma on the person that the entire administrative system was brought into disrepute and Blanco concerned a human rights proceedings. But, said the court, those will be the rarest of circumstances. The court suggests that to constitute a breach of fairness, the delay must have been 
unreasonable or inordinate, so oppressive as to taint the very proceedings. And of course, the delay must be causally linked to that conduct by the tribunal itself. It can't be the product of the applicant's own actions. And from that, the conclusion must be that the prospect of succeeding with an undue delay complaint in procedural fairness is remote. It has to be a very serious, egregious, and oppressive delay, presumably one that visits severe disadvantage on the individual. The last consideration in relation to audio ultram pardon that I'm going to talk about in this module is the duty to give reasons. Now, why would we want reasons from a decision maker? Well, reasons would allow us to decide how it was that the decision maker arrived at their conclusions. That would enable us to make appeals if such appeals existed under a statutory right of appeal system or to bring an application for judicial review. And reasons from this perspective may be important for fairness. Not least, it might be useful in detecting whether the decision maker was biased towards you as the person on the receiving end of the decision. So is there a duty to give reasons as a matter of procedural fairness? Well, for the last 20 years or so, there has been growing receptivity to the idea that reasons may be required as a matter of procedural fairness. And that line was really drawn by the Baker decision in 1999, where the Supreme Court concluded that in certain circumstances, procedural fairness will require a written explanation for the decision. And the two circumstances that were identified by the court, first, where the decision has an important significance for the individual, and so the more important the significance to the individual, the more likely it is that written explanation of the conclusions are required, or where there's a statutory right of appeal, there too, it's more likely that reasons will be obligatory. And as an aside, there's a third pattern that one can detect in some of the lower court case law that suggests that the more that the tribunal conducts itself as a quasi-judicial body, the more likely it is that reasons will be required. And so this would be consistent with that first prong of the Baker test, the nature of the tribunal and the process by which it reaches its decision. Now, another footnote on the question of reasons, as we shall see after we finish with procedural fairness, the courts have also considered reasons in the context of substantive review, and they've sort of toggled on and off between focusing on the sufficiency of reasons as a substantive ground of review issue. Personally, I think that after the 2019 decision in Vavilov, that toggle is back on and that the courts will look to the quality and sufficiency of reasons for purposes of assessing whether there has been a substantive error. And so the way to demarcate reasons as a substantive matter versus reasons as a procedural matter, procedural fairness asks the question, are reasons required? Yes or no? And so you look to these sorts of considerations that were raised in the Baker case. In substantive review, the focus is on the sufficiency of the reasons and specifically whether those reasons outline enough of a rationale for the conclusion reached that the decision can be considered reasonable or not. And so reasons play two roles, if you will, in terms of administrative law, one on the procedural side of the house and one on the substantive side. We'll talk more about reasons as a matter of substantive review when we get to that module. And so that's all I'm going to say about audial trimpartum and the various rights associated with audial trimpartum. Think about them as 
a range of rights that go from the point at which you know there's a decision to be made through to the culmination of the decision and the issuance of reasons. And so I've subdivided those rights into the two categories, knowing and conveying the case. We talked about notice, we talked about disclosure, we talked about representation, and we talked about hearings, and then a series of rights associated with deciding the case. We talked about evidence, we talked about they who hears decides, we talked about the question of undue delay, and we talked about reasons. The starting point is always to perform that Baker analysis to decide how much procedural entitlement one has. And some of those Baker variables then become important in the jurisprudence and case law surrounding these particular rights. But as we've also seen, there are some particular more idiosyncratic considerations that are tied to specific rights. So, for example, note the prominence of concerns about credibility arising in deciding whether hearings should be oral or merely written that's the sort of consideration that's really not traced in the Baker test. And so you have to be familiar with the specific case law associated with oral hearings in order to know to apply it. When we come back in the next module, we're going to shift gears and we're going to focus on the second broad class of procedural entitlements associated with common law, fundamental justice, due process, etc. We're going to be talking about nemojudics, the right to an unbiased decision maker. Until then... This ends module 13.